you have your Bibles, please go ahead and grab them, open them to 1 Corinthians. We're back in our series. I just want to say, though, <laughs> to be a little sensitive, um, I write my sermons a week in advance. So anything I preach today, I wrote a week ago. Okay, I didn't write it this week, I wrote it last week. Um, so, and I say that only because there are some comments in here about, because we're talking about communion and gathering, and there's some comments about watching online. And I don't want you to take those as <laughs> daggers towards emergencies like today, um, but rather just making online the regular routine of gathering, which I have some comments about that in light of how we are to gather. But that was written long before I knew the forecast for today, okay? So don't take any of that personally. Unless you do, that might be the Holy Spirit. We'll just call it that. So, <laughs> But yes, we're back in our series on 1 Corinthians, this difficult, challenging letter. I know it's been difficult, but it's also been rewarding. I know it's been tough, but this letter, this letter has beat us up in ways. It has, it has uh, pointed out flaws in my own life, and I'm sure flaws in your life, but it has also delivered to us on a platter the greatest hope that's available, and that's the hope that is only found in the gospel. But just to bring your mind back up to speed, just before Advent, we start at chapter 11 of 1 Corinthians, which is the fourth division that I've broken this book into, and I've called this division, Corporate Worship Wars. Doesn't that sound fun? Corporate Worship Wars. Sounds like a youth game, but it's not. Uh, there's no laser tag after service, I promise you that. But uh, And there's going to be a lot of crazy things happening in these next few verses, from abuses to spiritual gifts and other things like that. And we're just going to go and wade through the uncomfortable waters together. They'll be challenging for us, it might even be a doozy for others of us, but let's just go into it right now with the heart and mindset that Scripture alone is our authority, not our opinion, not how we feel or, or how our favorite theologian has interpreted this, but Scripture alone is our authority. And if we have believed wrongly, then may we be corrected by Scripture. And if we got it, bang on. Well, I have some gold stars for you after service, okay? Um, but, uh, but we got to remember, Corinth, Corinthian, Corinth, sorry, was a church that was filled with all kinds of divisions, much more than just kind of petty personality divisions. Uh, but, but we have seen that they have divisions in convictions over what is right and wrong for Christians. They've had cultural divisions, class division. And let me just say, there's always going to be diversity in the church. And that's, that's expected. There's going to be diversity in age, background, class, race, diversity in our preferences, even diversity in our own conviction on secondary matters and political approaches and the like. And that's okay. And a lot of those, um, what do you call them, divisions or these uh, differences will cause divisions in our church, some small, some large, and that's expected. We shouldn't be surprised from that. A healthy church is not void of a little bit of tension because Jesus... Jesus' vision for the church is not that we would all be in uniformity here. How boring would that be if you're all like me? That would just be horrible. But we're not to be in uniformity and all things cultural, but we are to be united around Christ, who Jesus is. We can all agree on that, and that should outweigh all of our secondary opinions, and that should void all those divisions. We can have the discussions, we can disagree, but at the end of the day, we know we're brothers and sisters in Christ because we both believe in Jesus and he is Lord of our life. Amen? It's got to be louder. There's only a few of you. Amen? 
Okay. So for the Corinthians, the one place that should have displayed this unity should have been their coming around the table to take communion, to celebrate the Lord's Supper. But this sadly only elevated or highlighted their divisions. So with that, let's pick up reading in verse 17. We'll go to about 21. It will be on the screen, but it'll be smaller. So hopefully you have your Bibles. But verse 21 or 17 says, But in the following instructions, I do not commend you. You don't want to hear that from the Apostle Paul. Because when you come together, it's not for the better, but for the worst. For in the first place, when you come together as a church, I hear that there are divisions among you. And I believe it in part. For there must be fractions among you in order that those who are genuine among you may be recognized. When you come together, it's not the Lord's Supper that you eat. For in eating, each one goes ahead with his own meal, and one goes hungry, and another gets drunk. So to give you some context of what's happening in the early days of the church, which is when this letter is talking about and as when it was written, they didn't have formal buildings like we do today. What typically happened was they would meet in the homes of the wealthy of their congregation because they would have homes large enough to accommodate many people. Large, and, and they would be packed so full that people would be falling out of the windows and dying, like what happened to Paul. And, of course, they didn't have fire codes back then, so they could get a little bit away. Then we, we, we have a little more restrictions today. But every Sunday, they would have a shared meal together, and then they would do church. They had a full meal, not just a little dried out piece of whatever that is, styrofoam, and, and some juice, but they had a full meal. And part of that meal, they would pause and celebrate the Lord's Supper together. Or maybe you know it as communion, like we call it here. Or if you're from a more liturgical upbringing, you maybe heard of it as the Eucharist. But, what was, but what's happening here in Corinth is that the rich would all know each other very well because they'd either be doing business together or they'd just have mutual respect because they'd run in the same circles. And most of them didn't have to work on Sundays because either their employees were or they were rich enough to take a day off because Sunday wasn't a recognized holiday or whatever back then. So they would show up earlier to the church service. They would eat a ton of food together. They would drink a ton of wine and just have a fun, awesome, big time for a few hours. Eventually, the whistle would blow at the plant. The poor would get out they would start migrating towards the church and they would show up to uh, the service just in time for about to start and then they would notice all the good seats in the main hall are taken oh okay well I guess we'll sit on the porch or in another room essentially what you would have is basically two separate campuses one for the rich and one for the poor and then to make matters worse by the time the poor got there all the food was gone the ones who actually needed the food, they weren't getting the food. And the rich people, they've been sipping on wine for hours. So one group is hungry, Paul is saying, the other is drunk. This is an issue. So what this was producing, as you could imagine, is a lot of bitterness and resentment growing in the church. The rich don't want to be associated with the poor because they think they're boring and no fun and they make conversations hard because they're always complaining that they don't have enough and have nothing in common with them. And then you have the poor who feel excluded. And rightly so, wouldn't you? Right, you're one good meal a, a week and you show up and it's all gone? That's hard. But the worst of it all, the worst of it all is this theological point of the fact that when they would come to the point in the meal where they would observe the Lord's, the Lord's Supper for a moment, the bread and the cup, the rich and the poor were observing it in two separate areas. They were segregated by class, by background. 
The rich people in the first classroom, the poor people on the porch. That goes right against what this communicates, and we'll get to that. Paul is completely exacerbated by this. His tone in verse 22 is basically, I don't even know what to do with you people. I don't even know where to start. He says in 22, he says, what? I love that. (laughs) What? Do you not have houses to eat in and drink? Or do you despise the church of God and humiliate those who have nothing? What shall I say to you? Shall I commend you in this? No, I will not. No, I will not. He's saying, why are you bringing this junk into the church? And so to address this issue, Paul then, for the next few uh, verses, lays out a rich theology, teaching, understanding of the Lord's table, the bread and the cup. Because he says, if you would just understand communion, this would never have happened. If you would just take 10 seconds even and reflect and ponder upon the gospel, it would fix all these problems. He says in verse 23, Uh, to 33. For I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus, on the night that he was betrayed, he took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, this is my body which is broken for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, he took the cup after supper, saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of uh, of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. We just talked about that last week, amen, until he comes. And whoever therefore eats this bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty concerning the body and the blood of the Lord. Let, the, let a person examine himself then so and eat of the bread and drink of the cup. For anyone who eats and drinks without discerning the body eats and drinks judgment on himself. That is why many of you are weak and ill and some have died. But if we judge ourselves truly, we would not be judged. But when we are judged by the Lord, we are disciplined so that we may not be condemned along with the world. So then, my brothers, when you come together to eat, wait for one another. Just wait. So three words that I see in all those verses that arise out of Paul's theology of communion that we as a church should remember in every communion service that we do here at FBC. Three words that summarize what is happening in the communion moment when we pass the bread and the cup to each other. Three moments, if you really believe and apply them, would cure so many social divisions. And those three words are proclamation, participation, I couldn't make up another P, examination. So let's flesh out all three of those. The first is proclamation. Verse 26 says, For as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Now, in the Western context, you probably look to me or the pastor of the church as the proclaimer of the church, and that's true. That's what I'm doing right now. That's our job. But Paul also says that the Lord's Supper, what we do here in and of itself, is a proclamation. The bread and the cup are like visual aids that Jesus gave to us to help us better reflect on the gospel in a very tangible way. And the first thing that we see these visual aids uh, uh, proclaiming is the fact that we need to be saved. We all need to be saved. As Paul notes, on the night before Jesus died, he took bread and and he broke and he said, this is my body that is broken for you, for the forgiveness of sins. If salvation could have been obtained any other way, Jesus wouldn't have had to die. 
If salvation could have obtained through your or my good works, then Jesus wouldn't have had to die. If there were truly other paths to God for salvation, then Jesus would not have had to die. And I know sometimes people think that they're being generous or culturally sophisticated when they say, oh, well, Jesus is my personal Savior, my personal way to heaven. But for everyone else, you know, if, if God accepts other ways, if a person is just good and sincere in their religion, God will look at that and accept that. And that may feel kind, and that might feel culturally sophisticated to you, but do you realize how insulting that is to Jesus? What did Jesus pray before the cross? Father, if it is at all possible, if there is another way, let this cup pass from me. And you're telling me that God the Father said, well, you know, Jesus, there's other ways, but I'm still going to crush you. I'm still going to make you die. What an insult that belief is to Jesus. So this cup and this bread proclaim, you need to be saved. Being sincere is not enough. You must be born again. You must be born from above. You need to be saved by God. And this is what the bread and the cup proclaim to us. All are in need of salvation, but it doesn't just leave us there. It also proclaims to us that you can be saved. Not just you need to be saved and good luck, try to figure it out, but you can be saved. Jesus didn't add any qualifiers to the word you when he said, this is my body which is broken for you. Which means if you're here and you're a you, he's talking about you. Is anyone a you here? Yeah, he's talking about you. Sometimes people believe the lie, oh, not me. My, my sins, they're too flagrant, they're too shameful. I've turned away from God too many times. Not true, church. Not true. This is my body which is broken for you, all of you. Jesus said, whosoever will come and eat of this bread of life freely. I'm glad he said whosoever because if he said, hey, all these specific types of sinners can come, then we would always be wondering, is my sin on that list? But he says, whosoever. And what he means is from anywhere, anyone from anywhere, from any type of mistake or sin or shame they bring. He says, come. One of my favorite hymns, I love this hymn. It's, there is a fountain filled with blood. I love the words. Just look at the words. It says, there is a fountain filled with blood drawn from Emmanuel's veins. And sinners plunged beneath that flow lose all their guilty stains. It's taken hard not to sing it. But here's my favorite verse. The dying thief rejoiced to see the fountain in his day. And there may I, though vile as he, wash all my sins away. What a beautiful song. And what that means is there's a place at the table of God for you. No matter what you have done, no matter who you are, no matter where you come from, there is a place at the table of God for you. You might be the biggest sinner in Drumheller. Heck, you might be the biggest sinner in Alberta. There is a place at the table for you through the blood of Jesus Christ. His death purchased a way for you to stand as a righteous man or woman before God. But the third thing we see that communion proclaims to us is that suffering death are not the end look at what verse 26 says again it says for you eat this drink and you proclaim as you do this you're proclaiming to the lord uh, the lord's death until he comes 
Eberhard Arnold in his book, The Early Christians, in their own words, it's a wonderful book. He says, one of the favorite worship postures of the early church, especially when they observed communion, which was every Sunday, was worshiping with their arms outstretched. Now, not outstretched like this, like we tend to do, but outstretched like this, vertically as a picture in the way and the posture of the cross. Because for them, the cross was the ultimate posture of triumph. The cross, what looked and felt like the end, like death, was part of God's great triumph. The gospel says to the poor, you're not going to be poor forever. Jesus will return in triumph, and then you will feast at the marriage supper of the Lamb. To the sick, it says you're not going to be sick forever. You will suffer a little while, and then the Son of Righteousness will arise with healing in his wings. The gospel says to the oppressed, you won't be oppressed forever. The righteous judge will return, and he will make all things right to the lonely, to those who feel abandoned. It says, I'll never leave you, nor shall I forsake you. I have gone to prepare a place for you, and I'm coming again to take you there with me forever. This table proclaims every time we take it that our hardships, like Jesus' cross, although are hard and they're horrible and sometimes we feel like they'll never end, is part of God bringing his good plan into the world through our lives. Don't look down on the poor. They're not poor because they did something wrong or because they're not good enough. Jesus was poor, and that's all part of God's plan. Fourth, this table proclaims suffering and death. Oh, sorry. Oh, I I missed that one. Sorry. Oh, no. Maybe I don't even have it. I don't have D in there. But it is church is first and foremost a community of the forgiven. That's D. If, If the above is true, if what all we've said is true, that we all need to be saved, that all of us can be saved, and that poverty and suffering are not the measures of one's life, just temporary states that God has assigned to bring salvation to the world, that he will soon correct all when he returns, then in light of all that truth, that should produce a profound equality in this church, around this table. Religious pride has no room around the communion table. We are first and foremost sinners who have been saved, have been redeemed. We have been saved by the grace of God. Nothing we could do but only God. It's a gift from him, not our works where we can boast. Because as Isaiah says, our good works, our righteousness is like filthy rags. The blood of Jesus is the only hope for the best of us and the certain hope for the worst of us. The Lord's Supper, as you probably know, is fashioned after the Passover meal. And and fundamentally, what's happening when the Jews celebrate and remember Passover, if you boil it down to something really simple, is that they were slaves that were freed. Slaves who were freed. And there's no classism in slavery. There's no such thing as a rich slave or a poor slave. Rather, at the end of the day, it's just slaves who need to be freed. Meaning classism has no place around this table. In God's eyes, we were all poor, wretched, helpless, and blind when he saved us. Think of it this way. Have, uh, you probably have seen the, the movie, The Titanic, and if you're like me, you watched it on two VHS because it was too long. You, know, you had to switch them out, right? Or if you haven't watched the movie, you probably know the unfortunate story of the Titanic. And so uh, the Titanic is divided up into classes, right? There's rich up here, poor down here, and they're not allowed to mingle. 
God forbid the rich see the poor. That would just ruin their experience. And if you watch the movie, Jack and Rose, right, they can't be friends. He has to eat over there. She has to eat over there. They have to hang out on different decks, okay? But this part wasn't a part of the movie, but it's true. In America, after the boat sank and they figured everything out, there was, a col- there was two columns posted in the New York Times, printed in the New York Times. It said, lost, saved. Nothing else mattered at that moment. Nothing else mattered at that moment. Everything else was inconsequential. All that was mattered was lost, you're saved. Did my loved one make it or not? At the table, we recognize that at our core, we are all sinners that God saved. Classism doesn't exist around this table. I don't care how much money you have or lack thereof. I don't care how respected you are in this community or, or disrespected in this community. Around the cross is level ground. And the Lord's Supper is that sermon, that proclamation that destroys all these divisions that we looked at. But moving on to our second word that comes out of Paul's theology of communion, which is a lot shorter than our first, is participation. As the Lord, at the Lord's table, we participate in the body of Christ. Now, technically, the word participation doesn't occur in this chapter, but it's implied in verse 27. Whoever, therefore, eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty concerning the body and blood of the Lord. So what Paul is warning is he's warning them not to participate in these things in an unholy manner, which implies there is a proper way that we are to participate in the Lord's Supper. Paul's saying when you participate in communion, you're actually touching something holy. I know that's a little scary for us Baptists, but you are. You're touching the symbols of the death of Christ. And that's dangerous to do when your heart is in a a posture of rejecting the Son. But earlier in this chapter, in chapter 10, or yeah, chapter 10, we see in verse 16 that Paul does actually use the word participate. He says, the cup of blessing that we bless is not a participation. Is it not a participation in the blood of Christ? The bread that we break, is it not a participation in the body of Christ? So he's using it right there. Participation here means fellowship. Meaning that when you take this, you're in fellowship with the presence of God. The presence of it is touching you. There are two ways, though, that Christians can interpret this. Two errors that we need to avoid. And the one, the first one, is that we put an over-reading into what Paul's saying. That the bread and the cup actually physically become the body and blood of Jesus. That belief, it's a big word, it's called transubstantiation. Try to say that three times fast. Transubstantiation. Now, that belief is commonly held in the Catholic Church. And they believe that the bread and the cup physically change into the, transform into the flesh and blood. His actual DNA as you take it. But that's not what's happening. That's an over-reading. The righteousness and presence of Christ are given to you through faith, not through eating. Look at what Romans 10.10 says. It says, for with the heart one believes and is justified, and with the mouth one confesses and is saved. So how does righteousness come into your life? By believing the word of God, by trusting in Christ and confessing him as Lord. Communion is not some type of extra grace blessing that goes beyond the righteousness of Christ that he imputed to you when you trusted in him. When you trusted in Christ, I know this blows your mind, but you got the full package, not a down payment, that you now have to supplement every month with communion to keep your righteousness up. In the same way, the presence of God is given to you through faith. That's what Paul says in Galatians. 
Let me ask you only this. Did you receive the Spirit by works of the law or by hearing with faith? So did you receive the Spirit of God, the presence of God, by taking communion or by hearing the gospel with faith? The answer Paul gives is by hearing with faith. You received the Spirit the same way you were given the righteousness of Christ, by believing the gospel. You got it all, the full package when you trusted in Christ. The bread and the cup are merely symbols of his body and not his actual body and blood. But, but, a big but, I say that with a lot of caution, because this is where Baptists and a lot of other Protestant movements tend to get it wrong as well, where we tend to make community, or communion, sorry, all about symbolic. It's just symbolic. I'm just going through this whole ceremony as a symbolic nature of what Christ did, just walking through some rituals that help illustrate the gospel. But Paul says that in communion, we are actually participating in Christ. We can't ignore that. We are experiencing his presence, he's saying, in a special way. His presence, when we take communion, is here in a unique way. And you might push back and say, well, isn't he always here? Isn't he always in my heart? Well, yeah, of course. But he manifests his presence in a special way at different times, and communion is one of those times. My favorite way to illustrate this, and all you parents will understand this, but you've, I, I, I have these times often, I'm sure you did too, where I'm just observing Levi, we're going on a walk, or he's coloring, or we're just sitting there, and you're just looking at them, and you're moved out of compassion and love for them. So you pick them up, and you spin them, and you tickle them, and you kiss them, and they scream, and they say, Dad, you're being silly, stop it. Right? But my question for you, in those moments, is Levi any more my son than he was before I did that? Was my presence any closer or further from him before I hugged him and kissed him and tickled him? No. But in that moment when I picked him up and I hugged him and I tickled him or whatever I did, he felt my love. He felt my presence in a very special way. It was the same love, but he just felt it in a special way. And that's what's happening in communion. God's presence, hopefully he doesn't pick us up and tickle us, but um, his presence manifests itself in a very special way. And, and if you take a moment and you just calm your heart, calm your mind, you'll begin to feel the squeeze of your heavenly father. Maybe you'll even hear him whisper his promises from scripture into your heart. Maybe you will feel the delight over you as he sings songs, uh, as it's becoming Harv's favorite verse, as Zephaniah says, he sings songs over his people. And he assures you that he loves you, that he has promises that he'll never leave you or forsake you. So this moment is not just a proclamation, it's also participation in the special presence of God. And in light of that, it actually raises the stakes, which is why Paul adds the third word, which is examination. He says, starting in verse 27, where does that end? 30, okay. Uh, So then, whoever eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty of sin against the body and blood of the Lord. Let a person examine himself in this way. Let him eat the bread and drink from the cup. For whoever eats and drinks without recognizing the body eats and drinks judgment on himself. This is why many are sick and ill among you. And many have fallen asleep. Listen to me. Paul warns that eating and drinking of this table in an unworthy manner brings judgment on you. 
When you touch the bread and the cup in an unworthy way, because Christ's presence is here in a special way, you can actually bring about God's discipline upon you in a special way. Because the stakes are raised within his presence. So what that means is that we're demanded, in a sense, to come into that presence with a right attitude. Coming into the presence unworthily can bring his discipline. So let me just address the elephant in the room. What does that mean? It doesn't mean that you only take communion when you feel worthy. Because then none of us would ever take communion. Because we would never feel worthy to have Christ's presence. Because we, we would never get there. None of us are worthy to take the bread and the cup. None of us are worthy of Christ's presence. That's the point. That's grace. Jesus said that even at our best, let's just say you're going through a stretch, 18 days without sinning. I don't even know if that's even possible. But you haven't had one ill thought. Jesus says, in your own strength, you're still an unprofitable servant. Even though we're forgiven, we have more corruption in our hearts than we can uh, possibly comprehend. So it doesn't mean only eat when you feel worthy. So then what does it mean? It doesn't mean how you feel, but how you approach it how you come. It's a different focus. You can approach this table in an unworthy manner. All right, that's where I'm leaving it. No, I'm just kidding. So what does that mean, right? Well, firstly, it means if you come in a spirit of self-righteousness, right? You don't realize how dependent you are on Christ's mercy. You don't see him as your only hope, your only hope in the blood of Jesus. The irony is that if you approach this table unworthily, you're failing to see just how unworthy you are to partake in it. But if you recognize just how unworthy you are, then you're approaching this table in a worthy fashion. So if you think you're due this table, I'm owed this table, I've earned this table, this is my table, well, you're coming in an unworthy manner. Second, if you approach in a spirit of defiance, if you partake of this table and you know, you know you're not submitted to Christ, you're not a believer, then that is that you're openly and living a life in a way that displeases God, you're engaging in the very lifestyle that put Christ on the cross, saying, don't take. And taking this bread, think about it, you're saying, thank you, Jesus, for your life and your death. It is my only life and hope. And then you, with your life, you're openly crucifying him. With your mouth, you're celebrating the cross by eating, and, 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 but while you're participating in the lifestyle that put him on the cross. You can't shout, worship him and crucify him at the same time without expecting God's judgment. Friend, I say this with all humility. I need you to hear this. This is more for you than it is for me. Do not touch the elements of this table if you're not a believer in Jesus Christ. Don't hear me wrong. I'm not talking about if you are like me and you struggle with sin. If you're overwhelmed by your sin, Jesus came for that purpose. You're recognizing that you are unworthy. His death, his healing, his help for those who know their sick by his grace. What I mean is don't touch this table if you are not surrendered to Christ, if you know you don't believe in him. Don't add to your condemnation by hypocritically saying, thank you, Jesus, for your death when you don't truly believe in that and you live a life that exemplifies the very thing that put him on the cross. Keep your hands off these elements. Hear me, because it's truly dangerous for you if you're not a believer. So those, that's the second way that you can approach this in an unworthy way. But the third way, which I actually think Paul has mainly in view here, is in a spirit of division. 
This is what Paul has in the forefront of his mind because this is the context of the whole passage. In verse 33, he says, Therefore, brothers and sisters, when you come together to eat, he says, welcome one another. He says, don't come when you're separated from others. Or if you're separated because of your pride or because of classism, don't come when you harbor resentment or unforgiveness in your heart. Don't come claiming to cherish the forgiveness of God when you willfully won't forgive someone else. Don't come when you're divided from your brother or sister over secondary, non-essential matters, a political perspective, cultural bias, or whatever. Don't touch this table if you're harboring divisions and resentment, unbefitting of the body of Christ. That is eating in an unworthy way. Jesus put it this way in his Sermon on the Mount. He says, if you're bringing a gift to the altar and, and you have divisions with your brother, leave your gift first, go reconcile with your brother first, and then come and offer your gift. Paul is saying the exact same thing in a different way. He says, first, feel a real sense of unity with your brothers and sisters. Let that be reflected in your attitudes towards them and how you behave towards them and how you have fellowship with them. And then, only then, partake in these elements. Again, not talking about struggling with sin. We are talking about you willfully not wanting to be reconciled or forgive someone. You are harboring a spirit of vision, and this table is the very thing that represents reconciliation. So be reconciled together, and then partake together. And what happens if you don't, as I close? What happens if you disregard the body? What happens if you disregard the lordship of Christ? What happens if you eat from this table in an unworthy manner? Well, Paul says in verse 30, that is why many of you are weak and ill, and some have died. You might be thinking, well, what does that mean? There's no way to sugarcoat this. Absolutely no way to sugarcoat this. What Paul means is that many in this church, in the Corinthian church, have gotten sick and have died for not taking this moment more seriously. Not everyone who participates in communion unworthily dies, thank God. Or it would be really awkward Sunday after Sunday. But Paul says that sometimes that happens. And because sometimes that happens, that should show us how God feels about this sacred moment. A, a theologian, D.A. Carson, a great Canadian theologian, he tells a story about a friend he had in Canada, uh, or sorry, in the States, who had a church about 200 people. And the church that he was pastoring was run rampant with sin, and he couldn't even bring discipline because all his elders were a part of the sin. And they didn't want to do anything about it. So we started praying for three months, and he said, God, you either move me out of here or you change this church. He said he did 34 funerals in that one year. 20% of the church died in the space of a year. And that following year, he baptized 200 more people. Now, does that always happen? No, and thank God, right? In his mercy, he doesn't always do that. But Paul says the fact it sometimes happens should make you realize that we should take this seriously. And we see similar things happening in Acts 5 with Ananias and Sapphira, right? They sell their land. They say, hey, we're going to give you all the money. And then they don't. They give half. Now, hear me, the sin is not in half. The sin is in the lie. They could have gave $5 of that land and been fine. But the fact is they said they're going to give more. And God kills them. That's in the New Testament. That's how God feels about lying. He strikes them dead who exaggerated their giving. And thank God he doesn't do that every time. 
Thank God he doesn't strike us dead every time we lie within the church. Again, it gets a little weird every Sunday. I'm sure some of you exaggerate. I, you know, the fish was this big, right? And now it's this big, dead, right? <laughs> could, could get weird. But it shows us, though, how God feels about who takes this bread and cup. When we're saying, I'm thankful for this bread and cup, it's my salvation while harboring in our hearts the sin that put Jesus on the cross, relishing in the sinful resentment against our brothers and our sisters that Jesus died to make us one family. When we're willfully doing that, we're on dangerous grounds. This is supposed to be a moment of incredible gospel clarity where the church puts on the visible display of the unity of the body of Christ that he died to create where we declare our common hope in Jesus is more important than our secondary things that divide us. It's supposed to be a time of togetherness where we feel the warmth of family. So here's my comments on watching online. Again, not directed to you today. But this is why staying home, watching church online is not a good option. It's, 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 there, it's there when you need it, when you're sick, when you're on vacation, when you're snowed in, or your car didn't start this morning. It's there. That's why we do it. But when you were saved, to be a Christian, Christ didn't just save you as an individual. He saved you into a body of believers with children around us, as imperfect as we are. Don't get me wrong. Staying home in my PJs all bundled up is great. It's even easier. But it's not church. Church is being with the body, particularly for moments like communion. When I'm, when I'm away from Bailey, sometimes I look at a picture of her. So even better, sometimes I FaceTime her. But a picture or a, a digitally representation of who my wife is on a screen is not the same as being in her presence. And if you think it is, then I say you don't understand what marriage is. <laughs> same with dialing into church online is fine in an emergency. But if you think it's the same as church, then I would say you don't understand what church is. Think of it this way. One, what, uh, uh, one thing I love to do is go to live sporting events. And I don't get to go to many, but I, I do commonly go to uh, the Drumheller Dragons because I have the privilege of being their chaplain. I get to teach these young hockey players about God, and it's just a privilege to go. And uh, one of the privileges, I get to go in for free, okay? So, um, and, uh, so I love going. And uh, it's amazing when you look around the room of this, the Memorial Arena, and they're playing well, they're scoring, everyone's cheering, everyone's getting excited, and they're high-fiving each other, spilling beer on each other. It's just getting wild. And, and, but if you would just pause for a moment, and you would just bring up one political subject, they would all be divided. But for those 90 magical minutes, it doesn't matter what they're divided on, they're unified and cheering for their team. And I love that feeling. And that's at least partially what the gospel should be like. We should be so overwhelmed by Jesus that when we gather to worship him, all of our differences that we have with each other should be less relevant. And when we come to church, to our community, and to worship him, that should outweigh any of our secondary preferences. Amen? Amen. Well, there's no better way to end a sermon on communion than taking communion. And if I were to forget communion this Sunday, that would be a way, that would be crazy. But, but if you would, would you stand with me as we partake? And, and I know this might be a little uncomfortable, but J.I. Packer wrote about communion. He says, no matter what church he goes into when he takes communion, because it symbolizes togetherness, he would try to get close to people. So for just this five minutes, would we get close to each other for a moment? Just take a second as you're opening your... Just as a symbol of family, 
You can sit back in your seat, don't worry, as we worship. Okay. Look, you look like a big, happy family. All right, let's examine ourselves. If your stuff's open, let's close our eyes, let's bow our heads, and I'm just going to say a few things that I want you to think about, okay? So first and foremost, with your eyes closed, head bowed, do you recognize Christ as your only hope for salvation? Are you fully surrendered to him? I don't mean that you don't struggle with sin. I do all the time. What I mean is right now, are you living with some sin that you know is wrong? That you say, hey, I'm not ready to change that. Friend, if you're not ready to change it, I say don't take today. It's dangerous for you. And if you don't yet know Christ, please don't take these things. Like I said, these things are a sermon that preach the gospel to you. Right now, around this room, many are going to preach the gospel to you with these elements. So why don't you receive what these elements point to, which is Jesus, his shed blood for you. Trust in Christ and make him your savior. But lastly, are you harboring some resentment, some division against your brother and sister that you may need to hold off from taking for a moment and go reconcile with them? Do whatever you do, but don't take this hypocritically when you take the bread and cup. Hating or looking down on someone else that Jesus died to save is a horrible thing to do. So let's take a moment with a little bit of kid music playing below us. Let's just examine our hearts. Okay, grab your body, the bread. This body represents to us the forgiveness and healing in God's presence that he has given to us. Receive it, the body of Jesus Christ. Now the cup. This cup is, is the cup of our unity the shed blood of Christ, our future, as Paul says, in light of this, the fact that the blood of Jesus is our only hope for the best of us and the certain hope for the worst of us. Let us, as we have been, let us love as we've been loved. As often as we take this cup, let's do it in remembrance of Christ, the blood of Jesus. And as often as we take this cup and eat this bread, we are proclaiming as a family, as Fellowship Baptist Church, the Lord's death until he comes. Amen? You're now allowed to go back to your own seats as we close with the song. Thank you for doing that.